Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series, presented by TELUS. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. This show is brought to you by Métis Nation BC, TELUS, and Jelly Marketing. Tom, why don't we start off? Tell me about the ceremony that you just hosted this morning at this gathering. Okay. Uh, it's called a, a purification ceremony. Most people refer to it as smudge. It is not a smudge. A smudge is... Uh, what they used to do a long time ago, they used to have a can and they'd put dry grass and green grass inside and they'd light it and they'd get a lot of smoke out of it. It's got a wire in it and they'd swing it by the horses to keep the flies away. That's what's called a smudge. But uh, the purification ceremony that we have, we use certain medicines that we have in, in there, like sweet grass, sage, cedar, and a little bit of tobacco. And... Um, this time I added a few more, get the people in the right frame of mind to relax them and uh, creates an ambiance right away, when, especially when we talk about the DNA and the cycle of life and how it's related to the whole universe. So that's the purpose of that, is to create that ambiance within the people and within the room itself. The uh, sage stops the negativity from coming in. The sweet grass calls in a positive, and cedar harmonizes everything. And tobacco, of course, restores balance to everything that there is. That's amazing. So combination of those medicines do that. And so you, you would light it, and then you actually had your granddaughter carrying around yeah, yeah, it on a shell with a feather. Yeah, yeah, she's fanning everybody. Yeah, she does help me quite a bit, and we teach her that stuff. We teach her the connection, like her name. At first, she was kind of shy to say it because it's just a start. But once she connects, then she's okay. She'll do that. We've had different ceremonies that we've done, and she was part of that. She yeah. had a rattle, and she'd sing. She doesn't know the song, but she sang it because her spirit kicks in and kicks over. And so to raise the children in that fashion, they will never, ever forget. They might stray in their teen years, but they always have a foundation that they can come back to. They'll always remember that. I noticed some attendees would wash themselves like this. Yeah. Some turned around and she would tap their backs. With yeah, the... and, and brush them off, usually on their shoulders. Yeah. yeah. So the feather that she used yeah. from the eagle, it's an eagle feather. And for us, the eagle represents uh, freedom. It also represents vision. The eagle can see a long ways, a very, very long ways. And what that does to us is it puts our hearts and our minds together. So the vision that we have is the decisions that we make, we know how it's going to impact us and others today and forward. 
that's part of that. So, Tom, I, I can't um, go further without us acknowledging your amazing beaded medallion. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about that, what you're wearing right now? Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, this was given to me by a friend of mine because that's my name. It's White Standing Buffalo is my name. And uh, it was given to me in a sweat lodge in 1985. And uh, the medicine woman, she had the connection, the spirits come into the sweat lodge and they give me that name. And so I wanted to know, well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know? And she said, well, there's three elements. To it. There's a white, there's a standing, and there's a buffalo. He said, we all know that the buffalo was a food, shelter, and clothing, and the spiritual elements mm -hmm. a long time ago. So that's, that's kind of a complete thing in itself. And I thought, oh, wow, yeah, that must be me. And uh, the standing, she's told me that I'm always ready to help people. So I said, yeah, that's correct, true. And the white, she says, represents honesty, truth, and uh, just a purity of a way that you see things and impart them. And I, my chest just puffed up in order. And she said, those are things that you're working toward. You don't necessarily have them now. You have to develop them. <laughs> That's so that's where that name came from, and, that, and that's how it is for me. And for me, the buffalo sits in a direction direction of the north in the medicine wheel, and that's where the white-haired people sit, right? Direction of the north, the elders are over there. So that's all the knowledge that ever was and ever will be mm -hmm. comes from there, comes from the other side, so, so to speak. And, and those that are listening to the show and, and those that are watching can see it, but those that are listening, you're also wearing a, a Métis sash. Tell us about what that yes. means to you. Okay. I have a friend in Ottawa who's Métis, and he speaks that French, Michif, and he knows a lot about the sash, where it originally came from. It came from the French. The French had the sash, but each family had a certain weave, like a coat of arms. Mm. Yeah. When a husband went away somewhere, she'd come to a, a, a medicine person and ask about her husband or her son and say, I want to know how he's doing, what's happening, so that man would take that and connect with that sash and, of course, right away connect to that energy of that person, either the father or the sons. And, and that's the very, very profound connection of the Métis sash. We had lost that during uh, the transition period, I guess, from French to English, and we're all English now, and, and uh, the sash was not included there very much. But then when the locals started coming up and uh, they wanted sashes, they wanted that, and, uh, and they all wrote down what it meant and, to them and how it was used before the utility of it. But the most profound aspect of it is yet to be put out there so that people will know how that connects us to that spiral of life that I was talking about earlier. So that's part of what the sash represents. This one here that I'm wearing mm -hmm. is from BC, Métis Nation of BC. And uh, that's the colors that I was given. I didn't weave this. The whole sash was given to me. I have sashes from different communities and uh, the people weave them themselves. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And Tom, we're here gathered to talk about 
residential school survivors. Yes. And and what that means today and, and people's memories. Why don't you tell us what that well to you? I like I said in Isle of Lacrosse, uh, the main uh part of Isle of Lacrosse was the mission itself. There was a big mission there. At one point there was about six priests and about maybe fourteen nuns and about eight brothers. That all worked there. There was a big farm there. They had cows, they had chickens, they had pigs. And then they started at school. There was a little one-room school. Uh, but they wanted to bring more people in. So the people from the surrounding communities, uh, they created what they call a boarding school, which is equivalent to the a residential school. But residential school is specifically for the people under the Indian Act. And the Métis did not fall under the Indian Act, so they could not call it residential school, so they called it a boarding school. And uh, the priests and nuns still ran it. And I, w- I went there for one year. I was about 12 years old when I went there. And uh, I went to school there for seven years in Alacrosse and one year in boarding school. So that's eight years I went together under the church. The church ran everything. It was It was different. It was way, way different. When I went there, I was about 12 years old, like I said, very attached to my mom and my dad, who were bush people. My dad was a trapper. The summertime, they fished you know, for food. So we were all very close. We lived in a little one-room shack, and there was three of us at home at that time, and my mom and dad. They had their own little bedroom, and the rest of us slept on the floor. Uh, when I went to boarding school, it was so different. There was no love. There was no touching. Just if somebody to say, hi, how are you? You know, I, I love you. No, there was nothing like that. So completely different world that I stepped into, and it was really strange. It was really strange. The good part about it is there, there was other kids that you could play with. That, that was the, kind of the best part of it. And there was lots of praying. It was all always forever praying. And uh, we had a brother that kept us. I don't know his name. Everybody referred to him as Brother Big Bonnet because he had this tam that he used to wear. But he was kind of a mean guy. And for every, any reason that he could find, it seemed like to me at the time that he would come after you, and then he'd strap you. He had to strap it. It was kind of like a, a V-belt on a on a, uh, a motor. That's what it looked like. It was kind of long. And then he would take us upstairs, put us over the bed, take our pants down, and then he'd whip us with that. And he'd whip you till you cried. If you didn't cry, he'd keep going. So we caught on. We caught on pretty quick. As soon as he'd hit us, we'd start crying. Mm-hmm. So he'd stop. But he was, I don't know what went through his mind. They had this uh, thing on the wall with all the boys' names on there. And each day of the week, it was a weekly chart that they had up. And they'd have a check mark if you had a good day. If you didn't have a good day, if you did something that was not uh, acceptable to them, they would give you a black mark. So mine was a black mark all the way through. <laughs> So that would mean I'd lose my privileges. One of the privileges we had was to go to the movies. They had a they had a little movie theater there. It was uh, in a basement, uh, yeah. the boarding school. 
but they had the reel to reel, <clears throat> and uh, they would have cowboy shows, different things like that. So the only time I got to go to the shows was when it was Easter time, because then they'd have the Ten Commandments and all those shows. Eh? We had to go there because it's Catholic, right? Yeah. So we were allowed, even if we had a bad mark, we could go to the show. And we enjoyed it. You yeah. know, it was a break. So those are the different ways that they used to keep us in line, so to speak. And then kneeling in a corner, of course, you know, I'd kneel there for hours and see a long time. And if you look like this behind you, when he caught you, then you'd have to kneel longer, right? So you're fixated on the wall in the corner of the wall. And every night, we, we upstairs is where our sleeping quarters were, just beds like this. All the boys that were in there. And uh, the brother had a, a room in a corner. And he'd come walking around when the lights were out and he'd see the young one, take a young one inside that room. And we knew what he was doing, but, you know, we were kids, so... We never said anything. We kind of laugh about it, you know, because a kid would come out or an apple or an orange. Eh? And uh, we'd ask them what they do, and of course they don't want to say, right? A lot of them don't want to say, but everybody knew what, what was happening there in terms of what the brother was doing. And us being kids, when we told our parents, they wouldn't believe us because they're Catholic, right? These, these are God's workers. You can't, you can't say anything like that about them. So it was going on and on for a long time without any uh, any resolution to that. And it was not until later on when guys grew up that they talked about it. Uh, usually in, when they were drinking, they teased each other. But that's how they dealt with it, I guess, at that time. There was no other healthy way to talk about it. It was still frowned upon by the older generation who still believe strongly, very strongly in the church. Yeah. And it was not the church that did anything. It was not the teachings of the church. It was just certain individuals that were... It's, it must be pretty difficult to be celibate, you know, and, and uh, not be allowed to get married or anything like that. Eh? So I guess it, their interests turned somewhere yeah. where, you know, children are... The weakest link that there is at that time. So that's that's some of what happened in school. And uh, other than that, it was not too bad. Like I said before, there's just a family fragmentation. Right about this time in the fall, I used to be able to go home. And we didn't live in town. We lived in the bush. So it's quite a waste. And I'd have to walk through the bush. And that smell hits me now when I go in the bush. That smell hits me. And right away, that thought comes back. I'm going home, right? And it still, it still affects me today, that feeling that I felt. And even the song, Johnny Cash was very popular at the time. And one of the songs that was very, a big hit was, I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. And it just reminded me of being in that boarding school. I didn't like it, but that's, that's how it went off. And, you boarded there for one year, where you yeah, sat there every yeah, night. We're there, yeah. And the rest of the years, would you just travel? Each the rest day? of the years, I yeah, I, I went back and forth. Uh, I uh, it was it was the law that you had to go to school. Yeah, 
till you were 15. When you were 15, you had a choice whether you wanted to be in school or not. At one year, when I was about 13, I guess, my brother wanted to take me trapping, and I wanted to go, oh, I wanted to go so bad. And my mother finally agreed, and everybody agreed except for the priest. The priest put a, he said, no, he has to go to school. It's not going to trapping. Because they saw trapping as a dead end. There's nothing there. But I would have learned so much from my brother being out in the bush. And it just broke my heart when I couldn't go. I had to go back to a boarding school. <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was pretty harsh. I had my heart set on going out into the bush. And they even got a little small little 22 for me so it wouldn't be heavy. Eh? Back in it in the bush. They had it all planned. Everything was planned. We were going to leave in that fall and uh, not come back till Christmas. Yeah. And then, of course, after New Year's again, we'd go and come back in the springtime. But I missed that. So I missed a very valuable part of my life in terms of connecting to the earth and to the animals. So that, that was very difficult. And that was that year um, that I went to residential school in 12 and 13, around there. And uh, to me, that, that was such a change. And I noticed that at that age, that the priests used to preach about love, goodness, and all of that stuff. But in reality, what I saw was not what they preached. Uh, my sisters were both in there too. And they would say, they go and clean the father's house. And this is what the father did to them, right? And I knew that was happening to some of the boys and the younger ones, six, seven-year-olds. That's the ones they would pick on. I was very fortunate I was there at 12, yeah. so that didn't happen to me. I guess I was not on the market. I was too old. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it was not all... Were, were very negative like that. There was a, one nun particularly. She used to be the principal in the school. Yeah. Her name was Sister Laramie. She was very kind, very, very kind, caring for everybody. When I used to walk to school, because we lived in a bush, we'd have one hour for lunch. Everybody would go home for lunch. I would have to run all the way back to the bush, and it took a long time. Sometimes my parents were not there. My father would be out in the bush in a trap line, and my mom might have got a job. She used to work in a northern community called Krakenstone, which was a mine. She'd go to work there every once in a while, so there'd be nobody at home. So there's no use for me to... So I'd go to my brother's place. Sometimes they'd have something to eat. They didn't always have food. So that nun started making hot dogs for me on a, on a frying pan, an electric frying pan. I was good. And uh, she really enjoyed doing that. Then this one day, she said, I have something to tell you while she was cooking. She said, this is the last time I can cook for you. She said, the Father has forbidden me to do this. So I thought, wow, why would a priest do that? It wasn't, one hot dog was not that much. It wouldn't break them. But I don't know what the reasoning was behind that. And she was crying as she was telling me. It hurt her so much. So I'll, I'll never forget her. I'll never, ever forget her, the kindness that 
she had and the feeling, the emotions that she went through when she had to tell me. It was after that I, uh, I left Holocaust after grade eight. I left, went south. But in that school, there was a, the priests ran the whole town, especially one called Father Russignol. I was very young when he was there, but he used to go around all over, go visit people in the houses and everything, go and look around and see what they're doing. And they had a post office there where people would send for uh, stuff from Eaton's or Simpson's Sears catalog, and it would come in. And he'd go there and make the women open a package. And the clothes, if he didn't like them, they had to send it back. That was pretty amazing how, how much control that. There's another story to that, too. In the, in the 1970s, I was not there that particular time, but this is the story that goes around all across. There was teachers that came from the South. They started teaching, and they were kind of young teachers, I guess, kind of radical in their approach. And they were talking to, uh, you know, talking about uh, Marxist theology and stuff yeah. like that. And this one young man was pretty pretty astute, and he was kind of like the leader of the other guys and the other young men. And he started kind of hanging around together and started talking with these teachers. And those teachers told him, you know, you should have your own school. You should be autonomous. And they got all excited about that. So the priest, they met in front of the school. The priest was here with all the old people. And this young man here, Jonas was his name, and he had all the young people behind him there, and they were arguing. Who should own that school? Who should run it? And the priest, of course, didn't want to let go. And, uh, of course, this young man. So they got into a fight, a fist fight. And Jonas gave a lick into the priest. And, of course, all those people were like, oh, something's going to happen to him. You know, and God's going to punish him. Mm-hmm. Two months later, the young man died. But what happened was he drank a, a Mickey of whiskey without stopping. So it stopped his heart then. And he died, but all the old people said, see, see, we told you, God would punish him. But uh, they did get to school. The community got to school. Now they have their own school board. And uh, it used to be called St. Joseph's School. So they wanted to change the name to represent that autonomy that they have. So they came up with the name of Father Russignall School. <laughs> that's, that's kind of funny, you know. The, it's still in the mind, right? The oppression and conditioning is still in the mind. So it's still today, it's still Father Russignall School. That was in our 70s. Yeah. You come back? Oh, yeah, I, I go back. I, I go back all the time. We have family gatherings that I go to, and, and I still have a lot of relatives, young. But most people my age are gone already. They've all gone. So it, I hardly recognize the young people because yeah, I didn't grow up with them. And the place has changed so much. It's grown where there used to be bush and elders, houses all over. It's, a, it's quite something. I used to walk there all the time, eh, going to school. I got disillusioned with school when I was in grade two. The nuns would ask questions and people put up their hands. And there are certain people that didn't put up their hands. I know that's the ones that she'd ask. Eh? 
course, they didn't know, right? So I guess that was their method of trying to get them to come out and, and learn, right? And I used to have my hand all the time because I knew. Reading came so easy to me, so easy. But they never asked me. So I felt, ah, you know, they're not interested in me. So I took my slingshot and went hunting. Yeah. Uh, so it was great too. Yeah. yeah I, didn't, I didn't want to have nothing to do with school. And church. <laughs> At that time, when I was 12, 13 years old, I, I didn't want to. Another thing that really, really scared me was the concept of hell. You know, if you, if you die with a mortal sin, you're going to go to hell. This mm. is the teachings that we were given. Mm. So if you're going to die, you're going to have to find a priest to have confession, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if you we're not successful, well, you know where you're going. But uh, so I tried to deny the existence of God and all, everything. And for the most part, it was pushed back and pushed back. But in terms of, Trouble, if I got into some kind of trouble, God would come in right away. God help me, right? So the thing was still there. There's no way I could get rid of it. But I have another story, but that's for later on. And this specifically about this boarding school that we went to, it, it, it ran for a long, long time. And they had a, what they call a master after the brothers were pulled out. Mm -hmm. They had a master that uh, could be a guy from our community that came there and watched over the boys. And uh, it was not too bad then, I guess, you know, from what I understand. But we could not mix with the border boys and what we call the externs, the ones that went to day school. Okay. We couldn't mix. We were kept separate. And uh, after that, it kind of loosened up. They were allowed to come and play. And so it, it's, it softened up, it loosened, and eventually they did away with it burnt down once, but they rebuilt it, but uh, it was not as strict as it was because there were, most of the priests were gone. There was possibly one priest that was there at that time. and So things started to change. And uh, But like I said before, the conditioning is still in the mind of the people. The church is still very powerful in the minds of some people. My brother-in-law used to serve communion after the priests were gone. They still went to church. They still did those things. They did the preaching on, on a pulpit. And I was telling him about what happened in boarding school, and his face just got really red. And he got so angry at me, so angry at me. He just got up and walked. He said, "I will never believe in Cree." He said, "I will never believe that God's workers would do something like that." Mm -hmm. You know. So he refused, refused to listen to us. And so that's that's that power of that conditioning, because everything is. Connected to God, everything, and uh, the people are very, very strong belief in that God. That's some of the experiences that I've had growing up in that Isle of Lacrosse. They were not all like that, you know. In the summertime, it was beautiful, and there was no school, yeah. so we'd go and do the things that we do. We'd go live somewhere in a tent, and uh, we'd pick berries or go moose hunting, you know, different things like that. That when my dad was still healthy. But he died, uh, died when I was uh, about 14, I guess. Mm -hmm. He had some kind of heart condition or lung condition. And we don't know. <clears throat> but it, it, was a, it was a good time when we were all together. But once he died, my mom tried to raise us. 
herself, and it was difficult for her because times were changing. The old ways were slowly going, slowly leaving. Other rules were coming in, like the Department of Natural Resources for conservationists, right? So they had started applying these laws that you can't hunt here, you can't hunt there, you can't hunt this season, you can't hunt that season. And uh, they were doing their job. That's mm-hmm. that's what their job was, and they were trained for that. But from our perspective, we saw as well, we have to eat something, right? Yeah. We're, this is our way of life. Now somebody come from outside and impose new laws on us, and so we had to live that way. So it was difficult. And today, much more so. There were no industries in all across mm-hmm. where you can have a nine-to-five job. There wasn't any. The only big-time employer there was the hospital. People were at the hospital in various various ways. And there was also, when that boarding school was still, when I was still in there, they had big, big stoves, and they needed wood for that. Mm-hmm. Four-foot-long cordwood, and I think, one cut. So they'd hire meant for that, to go and cut the logs and then to bring it back. And my brother went there to go and apply for a job. He had, I think, five kids at the time. <clears throat> they were young. And he was living with this woman, not married through the church to that woman, living with her, common-law. And a priest said, I'm sorry, I can't give you a job because you're living in sin. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. And yet, you know, he had to feed five five kids. Yeah. But uh, that was their thinking. So what he thought. You shared the story about your brother-in-law not wanting to hear the story, not believing what, what you oh, yeah, saw. Yeah, yeah. When you heard the discovery of the what happened in Kamloops and, and saw that this was a you know, and more discoveries and more discoveries, mm-hmm. how did that make you feel? Well, <clears throat> we knew, like, through oral oral history and that there was a lot, a lot of children missing. And, uh, but nobody said anything because you can't say anything against the church. And there was a man here in Vancouver a long time ago who said, yeah, there's, there's thousands of children missing. Everybody dismissed him. Yeah. He's a crazy white man. You know, yeah. He's trying to make a name for himself. Yeah. But now he's right. Yeah. They the know doctor. he's right. Yeah. yeah. They know he's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we didn't want to hear. We knew it was the truth. We didn't want to hear because, again, it's reliving, right? And some of them didn't make it home, the ones that didn't make it home. How do you handle that? How do you deal with that? When you yourself had been in there and you you came out, you knew what was happening, you know, what was going on, but nobody believes you. Now that they found found the children, it's like reliving again, reliving again. And it's, it's difficult. But at some point, you'll say or think, finally the truth is coming out. It's coming out. What are they going to do? What have they done? What did the Pope do when he came here? I went to see him. I went to listen to him. And he didn't say the church apologized. He said, I apologized for certain individuals. So kind of took a, a stance of, you know, those are, you know, these are the bad guys here. I apologize for them, but we didn't do nothing. 
and there is nothing of substance. Like it's easy to say, but to do is another thing. So uh, there was people cheering when he was talking, and those are the Catholics, right? They were very happy to see him because they believed in that way still, regardless of what happens, I guess. There's uh, there's ways that what they call indigenous people today have, like what I did this morning here, but they have certain ceremonies where they help. There's I do what is called a, a sundown ceremony, and uh, we had this one guy who had been in Vietnam. He was never welcomed home. So at Torres Hardaway, when they... Uh, I took, I'll just deviate a little bit. I took a, a course called Native Studies Instructor's Program. It was a one year, and a lot of it was Metis Studies, and it's the Metis, the history. This teacher that we had, their second year teacher, he told us, he had went to Vietnam too, but he told us what happened. He said they had this parade ground. There's 5,000 soldiers that recruits, and uh, they had these dummies all painted red, Right, call me on it, rapist, all the way, you know, killing your children. And they said they had this ghetto blaster, loudspeakers, telling him that. And he said, we just went crazy. We went with our bayonets and knifed them. Knifed. He said, we got that training like that. Then they sent us to Vietnam, he said. So now they're in a frame of mind that's not them anymore. They're angry. So when they came back, they didn't have any kind of ceremony to take them out of that frame of mind so they can come back to being human. So this man, we did a ceremony for him, and he cried and cried and cried. He said, finally, something let go in. And he thanked us so much that he was accepted back again to the human life. He carried that. That was about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, from Vietnam till, till that day. That's how long he carried it. And yet he didn't take his life. He still continued. But now he's back to who he originally was. So that's the kind of things that I was hoping would would happen with this truth and reconciliation and that money that came from, uh, uh, what, 300 million that they got. And uh, I thought, well, you know, they're going to get these Native people to help themselves who are way. But there was not much of that. They had a residential school healing center here in downtown Vancouver by the Patricia Hotel on Hastings. And I worked there. Hmm. And the man in charge was a psychologist. So, again, it's a European mindset, right? It's not so much. We did have circles. But it didn't seem that it carried the weight that the psychologist had. He was the big boss. And then I heard there was a woman in Edmonton who got a huge amount of money. She was, I think, 200000 and some to write a book about residential school. Oh, we don't need a book for residential We went through it. We need some healing, right? Mm-hmm. So those are, again, it's, it's the Western paradigm evidence-based yeah. approach that they have. Rather than saying, okay, here's this pot of money for each individual nation, 
will have a different way of dealing with it. Let them deal with it. See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. But they still don't have the confidence in that, even today. Although we do have, like I worked in a prison system as an elder. Uh, they say they revere elders and her and everything, but if our word goes against the psychologist, guess what they're going to choose? Yeah. Evidence-based. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story that happened when I was working in prison. I had my desk here, mm-hmm. my desk right here, and I had my chair, and I had a swivel chair. I had another swivel chair, and I had a couch over there. So the big push was elders and psychologists have to work together. So there's two psychologists were in that institution. They came walking in. This young psychologist sat over there facing me. This older psychologist, uh, the head guy, uh, had a brush cut, tall guy, and sat on a swivel chair, swiveled around, faced the other way, mm. and put his hands behind his head. He said, so, Tom, how are we going to work together? And I said, I don't know, but I'll tell you what I do. So I started telling him about sweat lodges mm. and circles and smudging. When I finished, he went, Tom, 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 Tom. I said, I don't know. He said, what you're telling me here, I've never even considered it. He said, do we die and just die, or is there somewhere we go through? I have no idea, he said. Mm. Psychology, he said, that's what I've done all my life. That's what I know. Mm. He said, I don't know how we can work together. I said, well, I don't know either. I said, but I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I said, I can sit here till I'm blue in the face and tell you things. You will never get it. What you need to do is you come to the sweat lodge with me. Oh, no, I would never do anything like that. They left. Mm. Then this one day, I was having a circle. There was about six boys there. Mm-hmm. And I had a rattle. Oh, I don't have my rattle. And I was singing with that rattle. And then I passed that rattle around everybody to say what they needed to say. And they was going around and he grabbed it off that one guy. He went like this, just like somebody slapped him. And his eyes just popped open and just passed that rattle on. Never said nothing. And about two months later, two or three months later, I was going out of the institution and I heard his bang, bang, footsteps running behind me. I said, Tom. And I looked, here it was that psychologist. He said, you got a minute? I said, absolutely. He said, you know that thing, that invitation you had extended? He said, it is still open? I said, yeah. I said, I'd be glad to have you in a lodge. He said, but I gotta let you know one thing. I said, what is that? He said, I get very, very claustrophobic in a small space. He said, I said, that's okay. He said, you and me and the other elder, mm-hmm. three of us, I said, we'll have a lodge. Nobody else will be yeah, there. Good, he said, good. To me, he didn't want other people to hear his humanness, right? <laughs> so he said, oh, by the way, he said, remember that circle we had? I said, yes. What did you do? He said, I said, I didn't do nothing. Hmm. He said, <laughs> that's all he said. But I never did get the opportunity to sit with him because he retired. I really wanted him to feel that lodge. But anyway, that's some of the things that we go through in our work that we do from from the native side. There's lots of write-ups, beautiful write-ups, and they yeah. sound so good, you know, but in actual practice, it's a little different. We're still not there yet. A long ways to go. 
Tell I got to know. So next year, September 30th, 2023, year from now, what, what do you hope this uh, day means to people and how people can commemorate the day? And, and you know, <clears throat> I was telling my wife, I said, look, I said, the BC lines are all in orange. Yeah. I said, it's not amazing. It's incredible. And I said, look at us, we're all in orange too. I said, but we believe in that. I said, because we live through it. We're only a, the ones that got oppressed, but these ones didn't get oppressed, I said, but they're supporting. I said, they're opening up their minds. I said, that's incredible. So to me, that was, it's like a new beginning, a new beginning where people are starting to see more peripheral vision, right? They're having the tolerance of saying, okay, that's your story. Even if I don't believe it, I'll support you because that's your belief. That's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see more people that are more open. Let go of that fear and, and put love in there instead, right? That's that's what I'd like to see. And that's why I do the work that I do. I had people from all over the world come to my, uh, to my Sundance because of this man named Dr. Bruce Lipton. He used to clone cells. That was his job. And he had a, a tenure at the University of Wisconsin. He teached medical students. But then he found out that there's some assumptions in Newtonian physics that are false. So based on that, he said, I can't teach what's false. So he quit. Give up his tenure. And he started writing books, started doing workshops. He has a large following. So when he started coming and telling his people, People that follow him, this is what I'm doing. They all wanted to come. So he asked me, is it okay if I bring people? I said, absolutely. Bring them. How many? I said, as many as you want. But we limited it to 40, right? Yeah. The first year. So the people, different parts of the world, are now being exposed to our way of thinking, that verb-based way of living that I talked about, as opposed to the noun-based which is what we're talking right now. It's known based. It's uh, one object exchanging information with another object rather than being a part of. See, a verb is, and the native world is a part of, indigenous world, I should say. English is a part from. Now we separate things. It can be anything in, in a noun based world. <laughs> anything but who you are. Tom, is there anything else that you want to leave with listeners and viewers? Yeah, there's a, a new science. It, it came around 1925, they were talking about it, but it's coming really, really strong now. It's called quantum physics. So that quantum physics believes that we are connected to everything in the universe. And out of that quantum physics, the genetic worldview that we had before we inherited everything from our parents, now they have what they call epigenetics, right? above the genes. It's not the genes. Genes just respond to the stimuli that we feed them. So it's epigenetics. Now we can help ourselves more than anybody can help us. 91% or even more than that, some say 99%, the diseases and sicknesses that we have are self-created. So we can create them, we can uncreate them. But we just have to have that thinking and how that, that thinking helps through that smudge that we had today yeah. it puts you in a certain certain level that you, you can believe it's easier to believe because you're feeling it verbs is to feel right 
knowledge is to think. Mm. So it's more of a feeling. And we're going to start feeling for each other, loving each other, as opposed to fearing the unknown. That's what I want like to see. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for yeah. having the courage to share your story. Yeah, today. thank you so much. This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast presented by TELUS, and I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to Métis Nation BC and TELUS for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis News at MétisPodcastSeries.ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you, Marcy, for listening. Mm-hmm.